As you're being seated, if you'd take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. We're continuing through the book of Romans today. If you don't have a Bible, then please take the black Bible that's on the end of each pew, and uh, you can turn in there to page 942. That's where these verses are found. If you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Uh, And let's read together what it says here about Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection bringing life to us. Here's what it says, Romans 5, verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus is risen from the dead today. We meet every Sunday because of that fact. There is nothing in particular in the Bible that tells us that this Sunday in our calendar is different than any other Sunday, although we don't mind that culturally we have traditions where a lot of people tend to show up today. And so we're glad about that. But we celebrate every first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And usually around this time every year, I like to remind you that there is a lot of evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so I want to read you 10 pieces of evidence, and if you've been around for a few years, you've heard these before, but I want you to know this. Our faith is not just faith in terms of the way that the world says faith, which is believing something that's unbelievable. Our faith is rooted in actual historical fact, the fact, the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth not only was crucified and died and was buried, but that on the third day, he actually rose from the dead and still is living today after he's ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Ten pieces of evidence of the resurrection. A lot of this list I borrowed from Mark Dever, and I can't remember exactly what wording of his is still his and what wording is mine, so if that's an overlap, then that's why. But number one piece of evidence of the resurrection is the empty tomb. There was never any discovery of the dead body of Jesus, ever. When the women went there on that morning, they saw the same thing that the guards had seen right before they wet their pants and ran away. I don't know if they wet their pants. That's not in the Scriptures. But they knew that Jesus was risen from the dead. There was no body in that tomb, and no body was ever discovered. Now, the body of Jesus was seen after that, but not dead, alive. Jesus risen from the dead. So that's one piece of evidence, the empty tomb, no dead body ever. Second piece of historical evidence of this, there were never any charges brought against the disciples or the guards about the disappearance of Jesus' body. There was the claim, for one thing, that the guards had fallen asleep and that then the disciples of Jesus had come and stolen away the body. That's the story that the guards were bribed to tell. If either one of those things had been true, 
there would have been charges and there would have been executions. Grave robbers of that sort under Pilate's Roman rule would have been executed if that had been true. The soldiers who were part of Pilate's guard that he had given to guard the tomb, had they fallen asleep in their duty, they would have been executed for that. So there's evidence right there that that story that they were bribed to tell was not true and everyone knew it because there were never any charges, never any executions over that. Number three piece of historical evidence is the certainty that the witnesses would be discredited if they weren't telling the truth. Now, the people talk about conspiracies. You can have a conspiracy between two people. You might be able to keep it. Three, that gets a little harder. Four, five, it starts to get pretty tough. What about 500 people? The Bible says very clearly that over 500 people witnessed the risen Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians, as Paul is telling the Corinthian church about that, he says almost all of those people continued to be alive even at the time that Paul was writing 1 Corinthians. He's telling them, go talk to these people. Ask them about it. They're not holding together some kind of a conspiracy. That would have fallen apart so easily. They would have been discredited if they weren't telling the truth about it. Number four piece of historical evidence is the transformed disciples. Whereas you have Peter on that day when Jesus was going to the cross, denying that he knew Jesus at all, you have the disciples scattered like cats. Well, after Jesus is risen from the dead and they meet the risen Savior, they change. They change and they are bold. And that leads to the, the next piece, which is the willingness of the disciples. This is number five, the willingness of the disciples to die for the truth of the resurrection. If this was something that these guys had just made up together or just some crime that they had committed in grave robbery, they weren't going to go to their death and be martyred for this. And yet they were. All but one of them. And then, another, number six, Paul's conversion. Paul, who initially was called Saul and then later called Paul, he, he was of, of the sect of the Pharisees. He absolutely hated the, the Christian church. Those who were preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead, when he saw that, when he heard people saying that Jesus was Lord, he was zealous for them to be dragged off to prison. He was on his way to Damascus to have people dragged off for prison, to prison for claiming that Jesus was risen from the dead. And what happened? He met the risen Jesus. What's the explanation for somebody who was so zealous to persecute the church now preaching Jesus risen from the dead? He met Jesus. Number seven, James's conversion. I'm talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who eventually ended up becoming what you might call the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem after Peter had left Jerusalem. It says multiple times during the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, it says multiple times that Jesus' own family didn't believe in him. His brothers and sisters did not believe in him. James did not believe in him. But then Jesus is raised from the dead, and it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to James, and suddenly now James, who did not believe in his brother, who was telling his brother, stop talking crazy to everybody. Now he's going around preaching, hey, on second thought, my brother who I grew up with is Lord. Well, why is that? Why was James now preaching that his brother was the risen Lord? Well, because he was. He really was raised from the dead. 
Number eight, the New Testament witnesses are credible and self-deprecating. So when you see the evidence, the the main written historical evidence, which is contained in the New Testament of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, this is not the kind of thing where you go through here and you see all kinds of mythical, weird stuff. Now, obviously, there are miracles, and they're recorded because they're unusual, but these, th- this, is, this is not something that has the marks of a farce. There's all kinds of self-deprecation, even among the, the authors themselves, showing the ways that they got things wrong along the way, the ways that they were embarrassed around this Lord, but then showing that he was raised from the dead. Number nine, there's the immediate and permanent change in the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday for a large number of Jews. People don't just change their day of worship, right? What if I were to tell you, hey, starting next week, First Baptist Church of Matawan is going to start meeting on Monday instead of Sunday. Uh, Some of you guys would think, oh, that's just the kind of thing that pastor would do. All right, well, no, I wouldn't, but you would think, boy, that's crazy. Why would anybody do that? Just to permanently change something that's been settled for thousands of years, well, it immediately happened. Because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. He met with his disciples on the first day of the week. Next time he met with his disciples was eight days later, the next Sunday. And he kept on doing that. And immediately you have this sect of Jews that immediately and permanently changed their worship to the first day of the week from the seventh. And then finally, number 10, the emergence and the growth of the church. If this had all been based on somebody who was just a... You know, just another one of these guys who had risen up and claimed to be the Christ, claimed to be the one who maybe could, could redeem the people of Israel in some way. Because that had happened before. It happened before Jesus. It happened after Jesus. And those guys were killed, and all of their followers scattered, and nothing came of it. But with Jesus, the church was built, and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. It's a piece of historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot more that we could say than that, but I just want to tell you that we do not just rest our faith on made-up ideas and made-up stories. Jesus actually, in time and space and history, was crucified for our sins, was buried, and on the third day actually rose from the dead. And if that were discredited, if that were to shown somehow to be false, then we might as well shut down this whole operation and go out today and work hard or play hard or whatever it is that we're going to do because there'd be no point in all of this. But Jesus is risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. And you need to believe in him because he is Lord. And you will meet the risen Savior, Jesus, one day, whether as your Savior or as your judge. So turn to Jesus and live. So that's not my sermon, though. So let's talk about this text that's in front of us. Let's see what's here. This is talking about Jesus dying. If he's going to rise... Well, he had to die, and why did he die in the first place? Well, the reason that he died is to save his people from their sins. He died to take the death penalty that we deserved for our breaking of God's good law, to substitute himself for sinners and give us eternal life. That's what he did. Now, among the people who know anything at all about the way that the Bible talks about God, you probably know that the Bible describes God as love. Twice in the same chapter, 1 John 4, that sentence comes up, God is love. But what does it mean to be love? What does it mean to be loved by God? 
Does it mean to have all of our behavior affirmed? Does it mean that he secretly admires us from afar? Does it mean that he will keep anything bad from ever happening to us? Well, the Bible defines what that love is. In fact, in the same book where it says those two times God is love, it says here's what that love is. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. There's the love right there. Jesus died for sinners. Just as it says here in what we just read, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's consider these verses in Romans 5, starting in verse 6. If you closed your Bible, open it back up, page 942, Romans 5, verse 6. We want to think first of all about the fact that this risen Savior, the reason that he died was for weak and ungodly people. Christ's death for weak, ungodly people. Look at what these verses say about us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak, ungodly. What does weak mean? Weak is the opposite of strong. Weak means you can't do things. Weak means especially as regards what it's talking about here, unable to do good, unable to do what would be pleasing to God. He explains that more in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's weakness. You ever have one of those dreams where you're trying really hard to run and your legs just won't move? It's like they're stuck in syrup. This is the description that it has here of our ability to do good in our natural state. In ourselves, we are weak. Now you may think to yourself, well, I don't feel weak. I feel like I do a lot of good. I feel like I really, really try hard, and I, I've, I've done a lot of great things for people, and I'd give you the shirt off of my back, and I'd do all those things that people talk about at funerals when they talk about what good things the people did. Well, here's the next thing that it says. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Think about your weakness in terms of this. It's not just talking about your ability to do things that might be helpful to someone or something like that. It's talking about your ability to please God, to do what is actually good in God's sight. You know, there have been people since the very beginning who have done things that appear good on the outside and yet doing them not for God, but for themselves, for their own flesh. Sometimes even for the feeling of being a good person because they have done something good for someone. But what it says here is it talks about the ungodly. When we say ungodly, we usually think of people who are, are just really, really spinning out of control in their lives. But that the way that the Bible, and in particular the way the book of Romans here, talks about ungodliness... It's not necessarily that your life is spinning out of control. Maybe it is. Maybe you're just driving yourself into the sin ditch hard. I don't know. But it could be that on the outside you have things together pretty well, but on the inside your heart is far from God. That's what ungodliness is. 
Ungodliness can look like goodness on the outside, and yet on the inside, you're a double agent. You're not serving God. You're serving your own flesh. You might think to yourself, well, I obey the Ten Commandments, and you're probably thinking of the last half of the Ten Commandments, the ones that start with honor your father and your mother, although if we talk about what that really means, I hope it would be pretty convicting to you because it is to me. Maybe thinking, well, I don't murder anybody. I'm, I'm not a liar. Well, the Bible would convict us of those things too. But even bigger than that, you know what comes before the second half of the Ten Commandments? The first half of the Ten Commandments. And those are all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Even before we would have those outside things dealt with, like not lying and stealing and murdering and all of those things, God wants our hearts. And when our hearts are not trained on God, when we are ungodly, impious, not serving God, not worshiping God, not loving God's people, not on the side of God in who we are, then we are ungodly and we are weak. And no matter how much effort we put into the idea that we would be good, your legs are in syrup and you are not able to submit to God's law. But I have good news for you. Good news is, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. I want to clarify ungodly one more way, too. Because sometimes when I talk to people about being ungodly, <laughs> which is a weird conversation to have, but hey, we all need to turn to God. A lot of times the response that I get just in those personal conversations with people who haven't come to faith in Christ yet is, oh, no, no, I love God. I love God, and, and here's my evidence. I pray all the time. I don't know if you guys hear that in your evangelistic conversations, but that, that's an old classic. I pray all the time, right? Or some variation of that. I feel close to God all the time. He's always with me. Here's what Proverbs 28.9 says. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Are you submitting yourself to God's law? Are you submitting yourself to the word of God? He says, if not, even your prayer is an abomination. Or Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It may be that you pray all the time, but it may also be that your sins have made a separation between you and God so that he's not even listening. You need to have your sins dealt with. You need to be reconciled to God, but that's the good news. God didn't wait around for us to get strong. God didn't wait around for us to get godly because we wouldn't have. Nobody ever would get strong to please God and would get godly in their hearts apart from the grace of God. And what he's done is he's shown his love and his mercy and his grace that while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, at the right time Christ died for weak, ungodly people. Jesus didn't die for strong, godly people. He died for weak, ungodly people. And he did it at the right time. 
He did it at the right time in history, for one thing. So we think, think back, especially this week, a lot of our minds are set on the events of what was going on around A.D. 30 or maybe A.D. 33, that, that year when Jesus went to the cross. And it says in Galatians 4.4 that even the historical timing of it was planned by God. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus described it, too, in the first sermon that he ever preached. It says in Mark 1, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mm, The time is fulfilled. But it's not just about the historical time. It's also emphasizing the time in your life, sinner. It wasn't while he was finding you improved. It wasn't when you cleaned things up. It was while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. Mm. Mm. Let's look at that in terms of God's love for sinners. God's love for sinners. I want to assert something to you today that you might be very familiar with or you might not know at all. God loves sinners and God does not love good people. God loves sinners, not good people. Here's what he says. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm. I love those verses. I'm tempted to just say amen and we all leave right now. When it talks about people dying for other people, you know, maybe for a righteous person, maybe for a good person. Boy, saying here, we as human beings, we're pretty prone to dismiss other human beings. We're pretty prone to dismiss even their own lives, and especially those that we, we think are not good, or maybe even we think that their lives are not, living for, not worth living for some reason, because they're weak. This reminds me of how somewhere between 66 and 90% of children with Down syndrome are aborted before they have a chance to come into the world. By the way, come meet Patrick after church. He'll change your mind about whether or not their lives are worth living. But that's one, one piece of evidence of how easily we can dismiss others. I, I remember one time even I was in a conversation with a group of pastors and, and the, issue, the, the topic of the Italian mafia came up. And, uh, and they were talking about people over the years who had been killed by the, the mafia. And one of the pastors there said something like, well, they, they don't, you got to realize the kind of people that they kill. It's, it's not great people. These are people who had it coming. <laughs> I, would li- I, I, I would like to think, and I, I, knowing that pastor, I, I think he was probably just shooting from the hip. And I think he must have thought through that a little bit better later. But it just just goes to show how easily we can dismiss other human beings and even the value of their lives. And that's part of what it's bringing out here, is that it's rare for one person to die for another person. And when they do, it shows you something of how much they thought of that person. These stories of one person dying for another is typically something like a husband dying for his wife, which is very noble. 
or a mother dying for her child or a soldier dying for his combat buddy. But why did Jesus die? Who did Jesus die for? Was it for great, worthy people? Was it to show how worth dying for we were? No. It says right here that he died for his enemies. He died for people who were weak, people who were ungodly, people who were sinful, like me. That's who God has loved by giving his only begotten son. When it says, for God so loved the world, you may never have thought about the way that the Bible uses the word world. It's not talking about the best parts of the world. It's talking about the lost, sinful people. And that's who Jesus has died for. Lost, weak, ungodly, sinful people. He says here, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, but Jesus died for us. That means unrighteous people. One would scarcely die for a good person, but Jesus died for us. That means not good people, bad people. That's what it says. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not die for good people. You know how I know that? Because there aren't any. Jesus said so. He said in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. Now, obviously, Jesus redeems sinners. Goodness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Barnabas is called a good man, but we're not, we're not talking about those nuances. We're talking about these verses where it says, here's who Jesus died for. Not good people, bad people, sinners. Those who would come to God and claim, no, we have arrived somehow. And that's, that's evidence that, that God has accepted us. This is our basis for saying that we are on God's side is because we are good. Well, Jesus told a story to those who thought that. He said, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's what Jesus just said. If you're a good person, see you later. That's not who I'm here for. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus is the great physician. If you would come to Jesus and say, no, thank you, I don't need the doctor, and you walk away, your cancer of sin is still eating you up from the inside out. It is sinners. It's those who would be broken in their sin and come to the light, be exposed Know that we are the ungodly, the weak, the sinners, the unrighteous, the ungood. That's who Jesus has loved in his death on the cross. Oh, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit when we do that. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit when he grants repentance and when he grants us to turn to faith in Jesus and to receive the love that he poured out for us on the cross when he died for sinners. And that's why we sing in that hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Mm. We need to be reconciled to God, and that's what Jesus has done. That's what God has done in Christ's death is to reconcile his enemies to him. Look at verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We'll save that last phrase, which has to do with the resurrection for the next point. Point four, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, by the way, is where that's going to come up. But we are those who needed to be reconciled to God because we were his enemies. It says here, since therefore we've been justified by his blood. What does that mean? Justified means counted righteous in his sight. People who are sinners to be put in God's accounting column as righteous instead. Oh, not because we had righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. When we trust in Jesus, when we look to the cross and know that he is the only possible way that we have into eternal life and we trust in him and we love him, we come to him in faith, our sin is placed on him and his righteousness is placed on us. We have to come to him knowing we don't have anything to offer him except for our sin, but he takes it. And he has everything to offer us, his righteousness, and he gives it. And we have been justified, it says, by his blood. That doesn't mean by taking the cup. That doesn't mean that by taking communion that you're receiving the blood of Jesus somehow. That's a symbol to say we trust in the finished sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our salvation. That's what it means when the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus. It's talking about the fact that he was executed for us. That he is the perfect atonement, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Justified by his blood, you need to trust in him as the one who substituted himself for you to pay the penalty for your sins. You need to come to him in faith, resting on him alone for your salvation. And when you do that, you're justified. You're justified. We need to be saved by him from what? Well, we say all the time we need to be saved from our sins. And that's what the the angel announced when Jesus was going to be born. He will save his people from their sins. You need to be saved from your sins. But why do you need to be saved from your sins? It's not just because sin is bad. It's not just because sin is not God's best for your life. It's because sin brings wrath. The wages of sin is death. It says right here in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know ultimately what it is that God saves us from? God. God saves us from God. We were his enemies. Our sin deserved his eternal wrath. That's called hell. That's where he pours it out for all eternity. If God were to send every single one of us there right now, there would be no response that we could have except, you're right, God. But he shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can not only be counted as righteous in his sight, but saved from the wrath of God. Why do we need to be saved from the wrath of God? Because we were his enemies. Jesus didn't die for us while we were doing good works, while we were his friends, while we were showing evidence that we would like to be his friends, while we were showing a lot of potential and promise. While, while we were good people that he could really use on his team, no, it, it was while we were his enemies. Verse 10, if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I said something about this on Friday if you were there in Keyport, but I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but it, I just hate the idea that I would have enemies. 
when, when you have that feeling that somebody is against you, things are not right between the two of you, that they would write you off as a bad guy. Oh, I just, I hate that feeling in the pit of my stomach. Even when I have to talk to a mechanic or a plumber or a tree trimmer about something that they did wrong that they need to correct, and I think, oh, I just, uh, I'm getting this pit in my stomach. They're going to write me off as somebody that they hate, somebody that's their enemy. I hate that feeling, and I know what you're thinking. If he's that bothered by having people turn against him, then why did he become a pastor? Well, that's, that's up to God. You have to ask God that one. No, one of the greatest gifts of my life for God to do that. But, but Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what we should do. But why should we do that? Well, the reason that Jesus gave is so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You hear what he just said? He says, love your enemies because then you'll be a little bit more like God. God loves his enemies. And in that passage, Jesus goes on to describe a general love that God has for all of his enemies. We would call this sometimes in theological terms, we call this common grace, where he sends the rain on the the just and the unjust. Nobody deserves rain, but he sends it all over the world. Nobody deserves a good family, but he does that for all kinds of people. No, no, nobody deserves to have bread on their table and a roof over their heads and life and breath and everything, but he does that. He's, he's merciful to so many people, and that's one way, generally, that he loves. But what we're talking about in this passage is a specific, saving, adopting love, a kind of love that he does not show to everybody, a kind of love that he gives to certain of his enemies who he would save forever and ever. Parents, you can have a kind of love that you, you, you have toward all children in the world, right? You, you have a birthday party, and you give a piece of cake to every kid there. But your own kid, it's different. You have a special love toward your own child. And you listen to this. You have a special love toward one that you would adopt into your own family to be your own child. That's that special love saving love that God shows toward his enemies that was purchased on the cross for people from every tribe and and tongue and nation from all over the world. Specific people from all over the world receive this special love because it was purchased on the cross and it's given to us in time and space and history, applied to us by the Holy Spirit in the new birth to believe in Jesus, to be born again, to come to be adopted into his family. It is amazing that God would take not those who were just kind of sort of on his side already and adopt them into his family, but his enemies. Our sin has brought a separation between us and God. Our sin is an offense against God that brings a status of being God's enemies, but God would take enemies and turn them into his children, bring them in. Show them that saving love. It says in 1 John, 1, or 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Oh, that love, it's even more amazing when you consider to be called a child of God 
is something that God does for those who were his enemies. Or as it says in Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Mm, that's, that is beautiful love. That's love. How did he do it? Well, he did it by the death of his own son. The Son of God died so that we could become children of God. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the blood sacrifice, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. That's love. That's love. We used to be those who were, who were separated from God. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as it says in Ephesians 2. But then it says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Oh, when Jesus rose from the dead, he made us alive with Christ. He gave us that life when he brought us to be born again, to have new life in Jesus. And it says, by grace, you have been saved. Wow. We were out there. We were those who, who, like it says in Ephesians 4, were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But listen to the way, listen to the way Paul describes it in Titus. I just want to read you these what is it? Five verses. We ourselves, this is talking about us who trust in Jesus. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. That's what God has done for us. He took us from foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions and pleasures, and he brought us in made us children, made us heirs. That's the love of God poured out on the cross of Jesus and to applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we would believe and come to him and receive that eternal life. Hmm. We need to be saved by Christ's life. We need to be saved by Christ's life. Look at the end of verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies. He reconciled us by the death of his son, brought us into his kingdom. And now it says, much more shall we be saved by his life. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. If Jesus had just died on the cross and stayed dead, we would be doomed. If Jesus had died and not risen from the dead, it would have been just another death, as John MacArthur says in that quote that's in your bulletin today. But in fact, Jesus died and took the full penalty for our sins, fully human, taking that full price that was demanded for human sin, for our sins. And Jesus 
fully God, paid it in full. You know, it would take, oh man, if I got what I deserved, I would spend literally an eternity in hell. My sins would never be all the way paid for, ever. If Jesus had been just a man trying to die for the sins of other people, they'd never be paid for. It would never work. But Jesus is fully God as well. So that in his death, the Son of God could bear the fullness of the wrath of the Father for every person that he died for, for all time, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, every tribe and tongue and nation, and he put it away in one act of righteousness. And on the third day, he rose victorious from the dead. The Bible talks about how when we trust in Jesus, we're united to Jesus, united to him in a death like his so that our old self is gone and buried in the grave, and united to him in a resurrection like his so that we have a new life that Jesus gives us because he rose from the dead. We are not just reconciled by his blood. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are reconciled by his death, and we are now saved by his life. When did Jesus save you? Well, did Jesus save you when he died? Yes. And did Jesus save you when he rose? Yes. And did Jesus save you when he ascended into heaven and started interceding, praying for you at the right hand of the Father? Yes. And that's what he's still doing right now. And he's still saving you from heaven right now. And he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you and make sure that you stay sealed and stay saved. And when he comes back, he's going to raise you from the dead, believer. And he's going to establish his eternal kingdom in power and you'll be there, and you will be saved forever and ever. You were saved at the cross. You were saved when the work of the cross was applied to your heart. You are still being saved right now by the ongoing work of Jesus, and you will be saved to all eternity. And all of that is just wrapped up right here in these words. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We have a risen Savior who's going to save us all the way to the end. You don't have to worry when your faith is in Jesus. He will keep you to the very end. And what does that do? What's the effect of that? When we come to faith in Christ, what does it do right now? Well, more than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Mm. How does it make you feel when your team is, is losing and then they come back and win at the last minute? Have you ever jumped for joy about that? I'm not even a sports fan, and I've jumped for joy about that. Ask me anything about sports, and my answer would be, I don't know. Mets, all right? And, but guys, we all know that. So much bigger than that. Jesus was dead, and now Jesus is alive. The powers of darkness, it looked like they had won in final form, and then Jesus rose from the dead. He was there. He was there with no time left on the clock, hanging on the cross, and what were all of his enemies doing? They were mocking him. They were saying he saved others, meaning he healed people. Let him save himself. They were saying, if you're really the Christ, come down from the cross. Just saying, it's over, you lose. 
And what did Jesus do? On the third day, he rose from the dead. And we who trust in Jesus, we're raised with him. We have new life. We're brought in. We come to know God. And it says we rejoice in God. You think of jumping up and down because your team just won from that comeback. That is absolutely nothing like the joy that's available to us in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When you come to Christ, you won't always be happy about everything that happens, but you will always have joy available to you, and joy that's real, joy that's deep, joy that's not like what the world passes off for joy, joy in things that pass away, that ultimately just fritters away and is gone. This is lasting. It's eternal hope. It's in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It starts the moment you believe. It says in John 17, 3, Jesus, as he was praying for the people that he was about to die for the next day, it says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you know him, you know he's talking about joy right there. To know God, that is joy. To know him through his son, Jesus. Hmm. Your eternal life begins the moment you believe because you've come to know God and you rejoice in God and it's going to keep going eternally. Joy in God, it comes through our crucified and risen and living Lord Jesus. Because no matter what happens, when you trust in Jesus, even though we were weak, ungodly, unrighteous, ungood sinners, we've been reconciled to God and our hope is secure forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. Thank you for giving that substitute, the one who would take the penalty that we deserved and pay it in full. And I thank you that he did pay it in full, that he's proven himself to be our Lord, risen from the dead, given us life, sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, to turn the hearts of your people to faith in Jesus, to save us for all eternity. God, I pray that that would even be the case right now. Father, we, we just thank you for those who have come today, whether it's, it's those who are here weekly or those who maybe never have been here before, if they need to be reconciled to God, I pray that you would work that reconciliation right now by the Holy Spirit to bring them to trust their souls into the hands of Jesus who died and rose again for sinners. Father, I pray that you'd take us who trust in Jesus, sharpen our understanding of the gospel and sharpen our love and our joy toward you in knowing who Christ is and what you've done for us and give us a joy about telling others about this. Thank you for our living Savior. Help us to rejoice and praise him even right now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.